Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we love you tonight. Nobody's ever treated us like you treat us. Nobody's ever loved us like you love us. And we love you and we thank you for your presence in this room. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I want to share with you tonight that my passion is to raise up leaders in this church. And I saw tonight Ella on the keyboard. Ella, I'm very proud of you. That's great. You can never get good if you don't ever do it. And I'm proud of Carlton. I'm very proud of Carlton. So something happened Sunday morning. Lauren walked into my office and she said, Pastor, she said, I really felt like the Lord gave me something. And I told the Lord, I said, Lord, if you want me to share this, then you just have to open up a window. She said, literally, Pastor, one minute after that, Kaylee called me and said, Lauren, I'm just sick. I'm running fever. I've talked to Pastor. Will you lead Sunday morning? So she come and she said, Pastor, can I share Sunday morning what I feel? I said, well, tell me what you got. Let me hear it. So she started sharing it. And I said, that's, that's incredible, Lauren. It really is. I'll tell you what let's do. I want you to share that Wednesday night. And so she just looked at me like, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. Not even realizing what kind of week that I would have. The Grigsby's are out of town on vacation. But Lauren is going to share a word with you tonight. And it's from her heart. Lauren. So. I'm excited about Lauren. Come on up here. Excited about Connor. They have started a group called Hyphen. And they're going to grow that group. And it's going to be phenomenal. And I'm very proud of Lauren. It takes a lot to do what she's about to do. And so please don't just stare at her. Right? Don't just say... Let's see what you got. This is, she's not up here as a show. She's here to give you what she truly feels in her spirit that the Lord gave her. Okay? Would you receive that? Lauren, we love you, sweetie. All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm used to teaching. 14-year-olds, so I'm used to eight hours a day looking at those faces, so if you stare at me, I'm used to it. If uh, you want to really make me feel like home, you can go, uh, somebody can get up in the middle of me talking and maybe sharpen their pencil or uh, (laughs) crinkle a water bottle or, you know, ask 15 questions. I'm just kidding. But yes, as Brother Nealon said, uh, we are over hyphen. Uh, If you are uh, between the ages of 18 and 30 and you have nothing to do on a Thursday night we have a Bible study every Thursday night Uh, my husband myself and our group we would love to just break bread with you Uh, 
we'd love to get to know you a little bit more, hang out with you, and just grow in God together. So this semester in Hyphen, we've been talking from the book of Matthew. We've been reading our way through it, and we are on Matthew 9 this week. And coincidentally, I wrote this for tomorrow night. So if you're in Hyphen, you have to see me twice. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'd originally prepared this on Sunday, but like Pastor said, uh, God laid it on my heart to add something to it. And so we got to talking. And so for the more seasoned saints in the room, welcome to Hyphen. (laughs) If you enjoy it, you can come back for part two tomorrow night. I might not turn you away. So I do want to extend my gratitude to Pastor and Sister Neeland for trusting me to get up here. Um, thank you, Jesus, for you know laying this on my heart. So without further ado, let's get down to business. So today, we're going to be exploring the life of our rebel protagonist, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Y'all may be seated. I'm not going to make y'all stand. Um, so... We have been, like I said, exploring Matthew today. We are going to be looking at Matthew verse 9. I'm at chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. So I'll give you a minute to get there if you have your Bibles with you. If not, I believe it'll be on the screen up here. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 9. So the title of this story is Jesus Forgives and Heals a Paralyzed Man. So verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came into his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So let's break this down. Jesus has been all over Israel, and now he finally steps foot into his hometown again. He notices a group of men carrying a paralyzed man on the mat, And what is the first thing that Jesus sees first? His faith. Um, Now pay attention to what Jesus said next. He said he didn't immediately say his legs were healed. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven. Right. So the reality is some of us might sit here and read this and put it into modern day and say, you know, I've came all this way and I've put my friends out. I've put my family out. I've fought through all of my circumstances just to get here to Jesus. And then what happens? You forgive me of my sins? Like, what was the point of even coming? I can do that myself. Or I can pray myself and save myself the trip. But think about it for a second. Why did Jesus choose to forgive this man's sins? Could it be that Jesus valued his soul more than his legs, because it's not a foreign concept to think about uh, how our spiritual body is connected to our physical body, because we are one person. So it wouldn't be a foreign concept to really think about it that way. Or was it because along the line somewhere, he or his parents might have messed up, might have sinned, and this paralysis may have been some kind of like punishment or wrath from God's anger uh, and ultimately leading to his inability to lose his legs or not use his legs, uh, which sounds really weird, but I can think of three instances off the top of my head in the Old Testament where something like that happened. And the first one is in when Moses and the Israelites were walking through the desert, Miriam actually disrespected Moses and uh, God blessed her with the curse of leprosy. 
And then we have King Uzziah. Uh, he tried to offer incense in the temple, so he tried to act like a priest because that was a job that only a priest could do. And uh, it was a big no-no, and God also blessed him with the curse of leprosy. And then we have the author of Psalm 32, who he writes a psalm about how he's feeling bad because he uh, did something that he wasn't supposed to, and he didn't ask for forgiveness, and he didn't confess his sins, and uh, he was just riddled with anxiety and guilt until, and it quotes, his bones wasted away from groaning all day long. But in all of these instances, God healed them after they reconciled, so all is well. Uh, but we know that this is not always the case, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't always punish us just because we messed up, and we can see that if the first person that comes to your mind probably is Job in that situation. Uh, he really didn't do anything wrong. God, God favored him, but yet he got everything taken away from him. And it was a sad, sad story. I hate when I get to the book of Job because it just makes me sad. Um, but to prove my point further, there's also a story in John of a blind man sitting on the side of the road. And to put it in modern day times, like if I were a disciple, this is how I'd envision it. Uh, the disciples walked up to Jesus, and he said, all right, spill the tea. Tell me why this man's blind. What did his family do? What did his dad do that messed up uh, so royally that he ended up blind? And God kind of gets offended at this story. Or God kind of gets offended at their question, and he's like, why are you so wrapped up in what they did wrong, and why are you not looking at the transformation that's about to happen? So... Since there's really no context in the Bible or any evidence to suggest that this man necessarily messed up, let's just assume that this man's paralysis is not some kind of cause and effect of either situation. Instead, what we are faced with is a man whose broken body becomes a canvas for genuine transformation within himself, and it's a stage where God's grace takes center spotlight and it's a show for others to witness and learn from. So, in that case, why did Jesus kick things off with forgiveness? Uh, so, here's the cool part that we've been learning as we've studied the book of Matthew. Uh, two things that we've noticed through all of these stories that Matthew tells it's that Jesus treats everyone like a regular human being. And that, uh, I mean, minus maybe the occasional running with the Pharisee. He's kind of more assertive with them. But he tells everybody he comes in, in uh, contact with precisely what they need to hear. And this does include the Pharisees. What they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. So in this man's case... You're looking at a man who probably carried years of self-doubt. He likely wondered why he was suffering. He likely thought he messed up somewhere because that's, you know, what you hear. You know, if you hear these stories in the Bible of people messing up, he's probably wondering where did he go wrong? Why did he mess up? And he probably believed that God was truly angry with him. And there was something wrong with him. And that's why he was suffering. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't rush the physical healing. No. First, he tackles the guy's mental state, his view of God, and his self-image. 
He starts by saying, I forgive you, or I'm not angry with you. He calls him son, if you'll read here. Son, or child, take heart. Or in other translations I've read, take courage, or don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven, or you are right with God. So that's beautiful, right? So verse 3. Let's look how the big shots around him reacted. Uh, At this time, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And why is this a surprise that they would react this way? This is how they react every time, outraged. And I love this version, the NIV version, because it uses the word fellow in there, and it kind of gives it a southern draw, like, oh, this fellow is blaspheming. And then it makes me think of now, every time I read through the book of Matthew or any instances with the Pharisees in them, I just think of them being like, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Because it really isn't, right? They say that over and over. You know, pick one, me or Jesus. And sometimes Jesus doesn't have a good outcome according to the Pharisees because they think they're winning. So... Why were they all hot and bothered in the text in the first place? To get that, we need to rewind a bit and get a taste of history. So let's all close our eyes for a minute and get on the magic school bus and transport back to uh, Israel in Jesus' time. So imagine that I am just a regular guy from Galilee. And what do I do? I steal Molly Neelan's goat. (laughs) So I'm in a sticky situation, right? And here's how the whole forgiveness process would work if you were alive back then. So first things first, I would have to go up to Molly and say, Molly, I stole your goat. I'm sorry. It was just a beautiful goat, as beautiful as it could be. I just could imagine all the cheese that I could make from it and the lotion and just... My family had eczema, so what was I to do? (laughs) And then I would talk to God, and I would say, God, please forgive me, for I have stole my neighbor's goat. But does it stop there? No, it doesn't. I wish it did. It does now, but it didn't back then. So next, the real journey begins. So then I would make my way to the local market, or I would visit my flock if I were a shepherd, and I would... uh, muster up some kind of animal. It would be, for this case, a lamb. Uh, Depending on your socioeconomical background, it would depend on what animal you would choose, but we'll, for the sake, say a lamb. And so uh, the idea here is to select something of real value to you. So with my chosen animal in tow, I would load up me and my animal, my lamb, and my donkey, and we would all trot down to Jerusalem. Uh, no matter where in the district or where in the area we were from. So the temple there in Jerusalem is where the real magic happens. So once I arrive at the temple, it's a very public uh, process this is because I'd have to probably stand in line because I'm not the only one that sinned, hopefully, you know, unless everybody else in the world is perfect. Uh, So I would stand in line, and then finally the priest would greet me. He would lead me in a room with an altar, And this is where things kind of get heavy and a little graphic, so I apologize. So once again, I would confess my sins, 
But then, yes, to the priest. And then I would place my hands on my lamb that I brought with me. And this is kind of a symbolic act. Uh, act. It's basically symbolizing you transferring your sins onto this innocent animal. So it's kind of like passing through, like, uh, so that you passing on uh, the weight of my transgressions. So then the priest would carry out the somber task of slaughtering the animal, letting its blood drain into a bowl, which sounds really creepy, I know. Like, why would you want a bowl of blood? But what I would have to do now is I would have to stand here facing this animal, bleeding out, this innocent animal that has done nothing wrong in its life. The only thing it ever really did was eat grass and live, right? And now... I'm getting emotional thinking about it now. I would just have to watch this animal just suffer the consequences of my actions. And that would, you know, be a really heavy thing, right? Watching this animal just suffer for what I did. And um, so the next steps, though, are equally as solemn. The priest would sprinkle the animal's blood on the altar and then proceed to burn the, burn the animal as a sacrifice. And that's just a stark reminder of the cost of forgiveness. But then here's the twist. Once all of it was done, I would leave the temple rejoicing because God has forgiven my sins. So hallelujah. Um, but inside of the temple, there was a room known as the Holy of Holies. Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Probably everybody in here. Uh, this place was off limits to even really the regular priests uh, the only people that could enter this temple were the high priest, and they could only enter once a year in the holiday called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. I'm not Jewish, so please forgive me. Uh, <laughs> and so he would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement, and on this day, he would seek atonement for the entire Jewish community. And it would be a kind of a similar process as the one we just visualized, um, but the only difference is his entry into the Holy of Holies symbolized the com community's reconciliation with God. And so he would perform a series of rituals. Uh, he would offer sacrifices. He would, instead of sprinkling the blood on an altar, he would do it on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would offer up fervent prayers to, on behalf of the Jewish community. So forgiveness back then wasn't just God forgive me, right? It was filled with symbolism and rituals. It was a tangible way for people to seek reconciliation with God and one another. So now can we kind of see why the Pharisees kind of get all worked up? If you're not there with me yet, if you're not sympathizing with the Pharisees yet, let me put it in modern day terms. So look at your neighbor real quick. And then look back at me. <laughs> Eyeballs appear. No, I'm joking. Um, so I want you to close your eyes again and imagine your dream car. For me, it would be anything but a Hyundai Elantra. <laughs> but... You just got this dream car. You fully customized it. I mean, like, heated seats, heating ste heated steering wheel, air-conditioned seats, whatever you can think of in this car. And the person sitting next to you in the middle of the night walks over to your house, and he hotwires it. And not only that, he drives off with it and crashes it into a ditch. So what would your response be? 
I would be pretty mad, right? Pretty upset, almost sick at that thought. And I'm going to pick on my husband. He doesn't know I'm doing this. But I'm going to pick on him a little bit because he's new to the area and he like boasts about not knowing anybody when you're talking about somebody. He's like, who's that? So now that he's doing that, I'm going to, it's coming back to get him. So Connor, who most of you may know just from singing on the platform, but probably don't know on like a personal basis uh, other than seeing him around, goes up to your neighbor sitting next to you after hearing what's happening. And Connor, who's not a police officer, not a judge, not a lawyer, uh, but a teacher who you really don't know, says to your neighbor, you know what? Don't worry about what you did. It's all good. Don't worry about it. You're forgiven. So how are you feeling right about now? Pretty angry, right? Kind of probably like the Pharisees a little bit because he didn't follow that process. He skipped all of the process of reconciliation that we feel the need to have, which we do. Um, So like Connor in our scenario, Jesus tosses that whole system we know out of the window. And he's bypassing the priest, the traditional process, and essentially dishing out forgiveness like it's candy, right? So Jesus doesn't just back down, though. What does he do next? He stirs the pot even more in true Jesus fashion. So verse 4 says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now here's the tricky question. Which is easier, to forgive one's sins or to produce a miracle? It's a tricky question because now this random man who everybody's got kind of differing opinions on, depending on who you've heard him from, has to now prove his authority after claiming to forgive sins. So he says, verse 6, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. So what does the paralyzed man then do? Verse 7, then the man got up and went home. And then what was the crowd's reaction? When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. The crowd's reaction changes, if you notice. They go from, wow, what just happened? To, wow, that just happened. Thank you, Jesus. So this story, that's the end of the story, if You're thinking it might sound familiar to you, but it's like missing a little details. That's because it is. It's the same story that's told in Mark and Luke. And if you read it anywhere else, it's going to give you different details. Um, It's the paralyzed man goes to see Jesus. His friends, on the other hand, that this story left out was his friends actually traveled through the roof, broke down the roof, and traveled down to see Jesus because they couldn't get through the crowd. Um, But it's cool to read because every version of the story has its own unique focus. And Matthew does a good job here of keeping it really concise because he wants to highlight God's authority. So this story is a powerful reminder of how one man had the authority to address the brokenness within us, our sins, our flaws, and our inner struggles. And it resonates with me personally because for the majority of my life, 
I have struggled with depression and anxiety, and thankfully Jesus has delivered me from it. But you know, we all have these thoughts of just self-criticism, self-doubt, and lately, as school has started, I've really been wrestling with those because, you know, as sometimes you get up in front of your students after preparing maybe like a four-hour lesson, and you think that you give all this energy, and they just look at you like... And you're like, and then your admin walks in and you're still like, come on. And so you start feeling like an imposter. And sometimes I feel like that in school. Sometimes I feel like that in my friendships because life gets so busy and you're like, am I just a fake friend because I don't have time and think about other people? Or, uh, you know, sometimes even at church, my roles at church, I feel like that. Or, uh, you know, any area in my life, you start getting these negative thoughts and this self-criticism and self-doubt. And throughout these few months, a story from Genesis often comes to my mind during these challenging times. So in Genesis 16, we encounter a woman named Hagar, and she found herself in a desperate situation, and she actually ran away from that situation into the wilderness. And then an angel spoke to her on God's behalf encouraging her to return home or face her situation and embrace her circumstances. And in return, God promised her countless descendants, and she gave God a new name. And this verse where she gave God a new name is specifically what's been coming in my mind every time I'm having these negative thoughts, and like, I thank you, Jesus, for it, because it's really been helping me in those dark times. And uh, it's popped in my mind multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day, uh, really anytime, like I said, I'm struggling with anxiety or I'm feeling down, and it's Genesis 16 and 13. And it says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And it's really a beautiful testament to God's compassion And understanding in our moments of hardship, you are the God who sees me. And as I was preparing for this study, I delved into the study of forgiveness processes in the Jewish tradition, and I was really in awe because the Lamb of God, the one has higher authority than even the high priests, chose to sacrifice himself by dying on the cross. And who did he make that sacrifice for? Not a single community, not his mom, not his hyphen group, not anybody else, but all of us. And that's beautiful. And what happened to the veil in the holies of holies when he was crucified? It ripped from top to bottom. So God and humanity were no longer separated. And this really gave me a new revelation of the God who sees me, or Elroy, because there's no longer a veil separating God and humanity. God really sees me, right? So, some of you tonight might feel a little invisible. You might feel like life is moving so much faster for those around you while you are sitting at a standstill. Your coworker may have gotten a promotion over you. You may be sick and you feel like all of your prayers go unheard 
I know for me, sometimes I'll get migraines and I'll be like, God, please take this pain away. And like four hours later, I'm still like, God, please take this pain away. And so sometimes it makes you feel invisible, right? And then in some cases, everyone around you may be having children and you tried to conceive, but you fail month after month and you're wondering what's wrong with me or you're in a dark place in your life. Or you feel like everywhere you turn, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try to change your mindset, you keep hitting a wall. Or you get a call one morning at work that your brother has been in a car accident. And then you rush to the hospital with no extra information. When you get there, they tell you it's pretty bad. And then he's not going to make it. So you cry, and you pray, and you beg, and you plead, and everyone else is crying, and praying, and begging, and pleading, and you're clawing at every possible ounce of faith that you can muster up, but then the next thing you know, you're burying him. And you're already sitting there sad, and confused, and blindsided, because what in the world just happened? And then throughout the next few weeks, you open up Facebook, as one does, and you see four viral stories of an incident similar to your brother's that you just lived through. But the only difference between those and your situation is they walked away. And you thought, I mean, and you think to yourself, why? And you kind of get mad. Why are my prayers not enough? Why am I the chosen one who has to suffer? What have I, what have I done wrong? Right? Can anybody relate or is it just me? So pastor has talked about this before, but I think there's a whole bunch of us who have the wrong idea of God. We think he's like the other people in our lives who will point out every flaw and every mistake, and every time we try to do something new or try to change old habits, we think he's going to say, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. How many have heard that before? We'll see, that, we'll see how long that lasts. So for those of us that are in that mindset, I feel like we are the ones that Jesus is speaking to in this story. So we may feel it visible at times. We may get defeated easily. We're self-critical. We may feel like we can't break these bad habits in our lives. And no matter how hard we try, we can't create the discipline in our lives to live the ideal lives we want to live. So we give up time and time again because we feel like it's impossible to submit to a perfect God when we ourselves cannot be perfect. So we try to do all these extra things and try to do more and more and more because surely if I do more, then he'll notice me. Surely if I act like the perfect Christian, he'll forgive me because obviously I've done something wrong in my life to be dealing with what I'm dealing with. So I'll double everything in my life and I'll try that and I'll give more in tithe. And then I'll read a whole book of the Bible in the day instead of just my devotion. Or I'll be the holiest of holy person. And surely that will get God's attention. That will be the key to God's heart. 
But the veil separating you and God has already been torn. It's no longer a process to come before God anymore, right? He sees you in your lowest place, and He is meeting you right where you are. He's kneeling down before your mat, knowing that you are paralyzed, knowing that you are unable to move forward because of self-doubt, because of self-hatred, because of anxiety, because of depression, because of something negative that's going on in your life that you may blame yourself for. And he's saying, son, daughter, child, I see you. I am not mad at you. I love you. I am for you. And I forgive you. So what do I want you to get out of this? I want you to see that God sees you. And that God is not mad at you. I want you to know that you are not invisible to God. And he's going to bless you tenfold in his timing. That's the key. His timing. I want you to feel the love of God that he has for you. No matter who you are. No matter what your past is. No matter what mistakes that you've made. And no matter who your family is. And in the times that you get low this week, in the weeks to come, I want you to think about who he is and remind yourself that he is Elroy, the God who sees you. And he has not forgotten you. Now take your mat or whatever crutch that you've been relying on. Take whatever problem that has been weighing you down and get up and walk.